Hello, this is Victoria Schneps, publisher of Schneps Media, AM New York Metro and 70 other media outlets. And I am delighted today to be doing our power woman, Gail Sheehy. Gail is an extraordinary woman whose life has led a great path as a journalist, as an author, as a public speaker, and a cultural observer. Welcome. Welcome, Gail. So good to have you on my Power Women show. You have earned the title of Power Woman. Well, uh, I am honored to be in your company because I can't imagine a more powerful woman uh, who can actually take over the news uh, room of New York City. It's a big city, and you have a lot of newspapers. (laughs) I know. Life is a great adventure. I think you know that, and you've made it your life. But how did you get inspired to be who you are today? What from your childhood could you recall that influenced you? Well, my grandmother lived with us, and she covered for me when I was 9 or 10 years old and would get on the commuter train uh, on a Saturday and uh, ride into New York to go to Grand Central and with a notebook so I could make notes on all the people down there and, you know, imagine myself writing a, a novel. Uh, and that got into my blood, and my first real inspiration came from Margaret Mead. I had a scholarship to go to Columbia and study with whomever I wanted. And what she told me changed my life. Um, She said, whenever you hear about a great cultural phenomenon, a revolution, an assassination, a notorious trial, like today, uh, an attack on the country, drop everything, get it on a bus or a train or a plane, and go there. Stand at the edge of the abyss and look down into it. You will see your culture turned inside out and revealed in a raw state. Mm, How powerful. Oh, my. And how old were you when you were with her? I was 23. Wow. And I never stopped going to those places that often turned out to be very dangerous places, but where a a huge um, change was in the making sometimes with violent means, sometimes with more peaceful efforts. Uh, So that just became my way of interacting with the the culture and coming back to reveal what I saw and heard. Well, you know, I saw that you had written a book about, um, you know, the uh, wonderful leader of Egypt who was willing and, and did do a deal with Israel. And I talk a little bit about how you came to meet him and to be able to write about him. I was sent by a magazine by, uh, run by my husband, uh, and I waited for seven days, six, for in a hotel room for the phone to ring and say I was, you know, granted an interview. <clears throat> well, the sand just kept pouring in and pouring in. It was really <laughs> unpleasant. Um, and the, the day that I w- was going to leave, he called or they called and said, you know, you can come to the palace. And when I, he had just come back from uh, a retreat, uh, a, a meditation on his visit to Israel, uh, which changed everything in relations to, between those two countries. And so he was in a very talkative mood and just he was really open about his life and predicted his death in our talk uh, we're talking his, about Amor Sadat so I mean he was assassinated how long after you interviewed him oh several months ah. so it was very 
uh, touching and personal to me uh, because he was a great man, uh, even though people in his country didn't really appreciate him until he was assassinated. So those kinds of interviews where you connect with somebody right away by telling them something about their history that you know and probably most other authors don't know, uh, and that turns them on, and then they really want to tell you everything. Um, and that They trusted you. Important. He trusted you. Yes, he did. He absolutely did, and his communications advisor was behind him, waving his hands frantically and, you know, cutting his throat with a finger. You know, stop, stop, stop. I was there for two hours. Oh, my. You also interviewed Senator Robert Kennedy before he was assassinated. I mean, this is very strange, these two um, great it, men. It made me feel a little bit like uh, Bad Luck Gale, but um, that was m- many years before. Well, it was 1968, of, of course. Yes. And I, it was my first political story. I rode back from uh, Oregon to Los Angeles with the senator and got very close to him. He allowed me to sit next to him and really talk to him. Uh, and I came to the conclusion that he was a fatalist. He knew that he was, you know, going to be probably suffer the fate of his brother. He just knew it. And so he walks into, you know, a hotel room. And I had just left for New York when the assassination took place. Oh, my. So I felt, you know, I had one of the last interviews with one of the great men of our of our time. For sure. And then how did you get into working, the, writing these books about passages? I was in Northern Ireland um, uh, on a civil rights march with uh, the um, beleaguered Catholics, uh, and they met the British soldiers at the barricades and tear gas and so on. And then I was standing next to a young boy who was and watching all of a sudden the British uh, armored tanks you know, crushed into the crowd and began firing indiscriminately at innocent people. And all of a sudden, the boy next to me, when I was talking to, had a, took a bullet in the face. Oh, my. <gasps> and that shock actually, you know, persuaded me that I had to write about the, the things that, that we go through and how we, how we get over them. Because that image I, had to be stuck in your mind. Oh, well, of course, forever. Yes. Um, but I began looking, I, be, I began turning around the research I was doing for another book uh, into research on people's uh, stages. I, I came to the idea that uh, we, as, a, as growing adults, we go through stages that are interrupted by passages, which leave us feeling very... Uh, uncertain and uh, no equilibrium. We're changing. We don't want to change, but we have to change if we're going to go forward. And I, I labeled that passages. And that stuck as a word that really entered the English language. Uh, and it was a forever subject. I did six books on different kinds of passages for different people, including men uh, and people who were caregivers for their uh, elders and so on. So sometimes, you know, being right next to violence really... Wow, that shook you. But it shook you into another world of carrying this whole series of passages. What are you working on now? 
Well, I'm working on the passages of millennials. Ah. Uh, those um, rather nervous and uncertain, uh, but very, very powerful in changing absolutely everything about our culture. Uh, they're 23 to 38 now, and the women are <coughs> flourishing, uh, the men not so much, uh, and that's been going on for about 30 years, and now a lot of men feel really displaced. And those who are most angry about it uh, are lured by uh, white supremacy and their websites. So it, it covers... The name of it is Rough Passages. Oh, Rough Passages. Wow. So, and, yeah. and, and the subtitle would be The Millennial Generation. Is that what you're kind of aiming on, writing about? Well, I talk about five crises that have led them to change everything because they had to get through. Uh, first, as young people, they had to get through 9-11, uh, you know, school shootings, uh, Many, many said by men the uh, 2008 Great Recession, which really blunted the life progress of the older half of millennials who are now 30 to 38. It held them back in making their life, in making their living, uh, in being able to afford to do almost anything for 10 years. A 10-year delay, and we don't really, you know, give credit for how they have mastered those that those terrible setbacks, uh, many of them, to be on the road to some success. But that that will always blight their life. So, do you and think also politically ones. that that this also will shift the political climate of our country? I, I'm sure it will, because they are much more cautious. Risk averse. Um, they don't want to spend anything they don't have to. They rent rather than buying. Uh, they're not marrying uh, until much later because they can't afford it. Uh, the men, in particular. Um, but then the younger half is learning from that older half, and they are even more risk averse and careful about spending and not interested, the young women, they are mostly interested in, you know, pushing their career ahead so that they will be independent economically and, you know, socially. Uh, so they're not wanting to get married until probably a lot will marry in their late, very late 20s and early 30s. And men marry in this age group about 32. So it's way later than ever happened before. And that's the millennials' smart choice of what a wonderful anthropologist, Helen, can't think of her last name, um, she calls it slow love. Interesting. Uh, slow yeah. love? Slow love. Yes. Helen Fisher. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really believe that's what they're doing. And it's a positive because they can't really get married because they many of them haven't finished the steps of adult life yet. They had to put those on hold just to scramble and make a living. Interesting. It's fascinating how these, um, you know, you've been able to see into the life going for the menopause, and now you're back with the young people. Tell me, tell me, what advice would you give other women on how to succeed? You've been so successful in your career. So I would love you to give them some advice, our listeners to Power Women. Be daring. Mm. That's, my, that's my mantra. 
you you can't wait until somebody recognizes your brilliance. You have to find a way to get to the top person and have have your elevator pitch ready to you know tell what you can do for them. Oh, and wow. that will usually be a male boss who's way up high. Um, and if you wait for years and years, you know, uh, down in the trenches to be recognized, it's not going to happen until it's too late. So, because by then you'll probably be in your marriage and childbearing years if you're a woman. And if you're a man, uh, the danger in millennials is too many of them are living at home with mom until they're 30 or even later. Not learning how to be in the marketplace, all the things that you learn by getting kicked around uh, and who to talk to to get, advance yourself and how to just how to be um, a an impressive person. So I say be daring. Take the chance. What's the worst that can happen if you go to if you go right upstairs to the boss and put your you know your your message out there? He'll he'll say, well, you know, maybe maybe next year, you know, come back and see me. It's not going to kill your chances. Uh, he'll he'll remember you, or and it's usually a he. Um, but there are now so many women in positions of <clears throat> power and strength that you can go to the women too because they are more likely even to offer to be your mentor, and that's the real key: having a mentor who can tell you, you know, what to do to advance your career, who to talk to, uh, and even talk to people for you. And then if they will invest in you uh, in telling people about you, that's the best thing that can happen. Well, I love that, be daring. I love that. I'm going to put up a big sign in my sales department, be daring. And of course, for my writers, I think that it's also very true. So thank you so much for being with me today. We've been talking with Gail Sheehy, both an author, a journalist, a speaker, a cultural observer. I love that last word, be daring, and she certainly has in her fabulous career. So thank you for listening in. This is Victoria Schneps for Power Women. See you next time. (music)